Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 171 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This episode of the podcast goes live on the 3rd of November 2023, exactly 45 years to the day that the Jam's All Mod Cons was released. Yes, 3rd of November 1978. And what an album. So how do we celebrate? Well, how about this? On the podcast, we hear from All Mod Cons, the world's first tribute to the jam. Barry Pugash and Andy Cook share their story. We will chat to these two fans of the jam who ended up bringing one of the original tribute bands from the US to the UK for sellout performances in the 1990s. All Mod Cons were created in Boston, New England in 1989 with Barriers Paul Weller on lead vocals and guitar with his mates Glenn on bass, yes Bruce Foxton if you like, and AJ, Rick Buckler, on drums. What follows is a remarkable story of connections via a Paul Weller fanzine that saw Andy take on management of the band to bring them to the UK for tours in the 90s and noughties. Now, this was pre-From the Jam, pre-The Gift. It was really pre-tribute bands, bar the odd couple, like Bjorn Again and Australian Pink Floyd. At the time, all mod cons were also really the only way to hear a full set of those classic songs by The Jam, by a three-piece, live in concert. In this podcast chat, you'll also hear how they both got to meet and interact with Paul, Bruce and Rick on various occasions, and even how Barry got to jam with Paul in a unique location. I'm really looking forward to this one. Let's get into it. All mod cons on the podcast. 
Barry Pugach, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having us on. And thank you, Andy Cook, for joining us as well. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, this is lovely. So, Barry, tell me where in the world you are right now. I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. I actually work at MIT now. Was able to get a, a little bit of time out of my day to do this. I was very excited for the opportunity to talk about our love of the jam, as well as I did want to, th- I was thinking about it too. You know, Andy, this is also a nice celebration of our friendship drawn together 30 years simply because we both love this band in the same man, if you will. I know this is audio only, but over my shoulder is a poster that Andy gave me the first time we met. And it's a picture from NME of Paul, of a very young Paul Weller jumping in the air with the black and white shoes. And he's looking fantastic. At some point in life, the great man autographed it for me. A nice celebration of my friendship with Andy too. By the great man, you mean Paul Weller rather than Andy, just to to clear that out, right? Yes. So originally when I met Paul, he actually said to me, he's like, so for those of you who don't know who I am, I actually fronted a wonderful jam tribute band for about 30 years because I love the music so much. And when when I met Paul and pulled out this poster, he looks at me and the first thing he said was, you're in that band. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, He then followed up with, what's it like make a living out of me? (laughs) <laughs> and I actually said to him, I said, we don't really make any money at all. I said, we're happy to break even if it's at all possible. Sometimes we lose a few hundred pounds here and there. We do it because we love the music so much. You know, we're fans. He really liked that. He went, oh, that's cool. And I'm talking about how much we love the music, the energy, the passion, the excitement. And he's like, that's all right. Then. Yeah. So I actually said to him, he's like, so what do you want me to write? And I literally said, I've got my American sense of humor. And I said, could you please write, Barry, all mod cons are a bunch of wankers. And he he looked and he says, I'm not going to write that. So he wrote, if you look closely, it says, to Barry and all mod cons, stay cool. (laughs) You'll have to send us a photo of that and we'll put it in the show notes, Barry. That would be lovely. We'll dig into your first connection with the jam in a second. But Andy, let's talk to you. So where in the UK are you right now? Well, I am in sunny Wimbledon at the moment. Oh, okay. You could have popped over. I'm just up the road from you. No way. We could have sat in my little garden office together and linked him. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to dig into your story. We're going to talk about how you two connected through this love of the jam. But Andy, obviously being in the UK, the jam were a much bigger deal here than they were stateside. So let's talk about your discovery of that band, first of all, in the well, presumably late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, so it would have been early 80s. So I was born in 1970. When I went to school, I, I grew up in Worthing. I went to school there. And there were a few kids that were into the jam because I guess you sort of become, or I became aware of music around the age of 10, 11, 12. You know, like really got fanatical about it. So by the age of 12, the jam were breaking up. There was all this stuff going on at the time with people that were really into them about stop and breaking up and, you know, all that sort of stuff that, that's been well documented. And I sort of got in off the tail end of that started to listen to the to the albums almost obsessively every morning before going to school and stuff and it just stuck and i can remember playing all more cons to death before school and after school and it became really weird to have meet paul a bit further down the track because it's like meeting this person that played such an amazing part in my sort of early years coming through the speakers every morning. When I started going to gigs, I, I used to go and watch the Star Council a lot and followed them around, went to a bunch of shows, including the ill-fated Royal Albert Hall. But I loved the Star Council. I loved the just the energy of those shows and and how much 
the fans seem to be a part of the whole thing. And I've never really experienced that in any of the other shows that I've ever been to with any other artists. It's just maybe it's just a, something at the time. It was just intoxicating and, and just brilliant. Your connection with the jam is uh, through the albums, through the singles, most of which have been, you know, they've been, you've not had that kind of rush of queuing to get them. Starting your morning every day with a well around all the jam albums, it's a terrific idea. The L33 used to go on and throw the needle onto the, the record. And that's how I used to eat my breakfast and listen to a few tracks of an album and being a obsessive sort of person. It used to be the same tracks over and over. What happened with me is I got into the jam just after they broke up. So I had a college roommate at university and he had sound effects and he had the 45 of, go- it came with a bonus 45 of going underground. He just played the crap out of that and we had the best time with it. And then one of the most influential things on me was there was a live performance of the jam at the Paradise in Boston recorded in 1979. That was a radio show that, you know, that they would play once a year and we waited for it. You know, we're like, it's coming. And we, we hit record and we had it. And I was just completely crazy for it. Cause what was nice was it had a lot of very heavy Paul Weller accent kind of going between the tracks. And he would say things like, all right, fuck the table, fuck the chairs, stand up straight. We want you here. You know, and he'd say these things. And I was like, this is so cool. And I started collecting the jam, like, and I was also very obsessed by this band. And suddenly I had to have it all. Like I had to have, give me all the records, give me all the stuff. And I started to accumulate it. And pre-internet, I saw an ad for a fanzine called Boys About Town that came out of Dundee, Scotland. And I wrote this guy, Andy, it was two guys, Andy and David. And I wrote Andy saying, I have these jam things. I have some VHS tapes and some performances. Do you have those? Can I trade you for those? And I sent him a bunch of stuff. He sent me a bunch of stuff. And at the time, I was in a band that we used to play a lot of 80s music. And suddenly I'm like, oh, we got to start playing some jam stuff. And then my good friend, Glenn, it's hard to kind of keep this together because there's a lot that kind of went on at once. But Glenn and I had seen Beatlemania. And we're like, oh, we should do a show like this. This would be so cool. We could take it maybe outside. Maybe we could get a show in New York. Maybe we could play Philadelphia because we had missed the jam and we were so bummed about not being able to do it. But we're, we started playing some of the tracks and then we're like, we're going to form a, a band. We're going to just do the music of the jam. And this is going to be fantastic. And I sent a cassette. To Andy in Scotland said, oh, by the way, I'm in a band and we do the music of the jam. And at the time, Paul wasn't doing anything like the jam were done. There was nothing, you know, Andy, I sent him a cassette and he's like, this is actually pretty good, Barry. You know, for being Americans, you guys, you know, he wrote a very nice thing. And he actually said, can you get a review of one of your shows? So we actually wrote it. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. How wonderful we were, but it was an actual show. We put these are the tracks that they did. Barry's guitar was exciting. He sounded just like Paul Weller. It was incredible. And so Andy Wyness and David Lodge, they printed this in the little fanzine. And I believe that's where Andy Cook here read it. And he was a young man in his early 20s. He basically wrote me a letter saying, can you send me a set? Let me give it a listen. He gave me a fairly honest criticism, but he's like, I'd like to start managing bands. This is something I've always wanted to do. Would you guys like to come over? I believe this was 1991. And he booked us a pub tour. What was cool was people came. 
So from Boston, USA, all mod cons, a tribute to the jam. And people miss this music so much. That's what where we show up and we're a pretty good band, but people love the tracks. They love the music. And we just had kind of, we, we would just fill in this void that was left in people's hearts. We did three shows, London, Brighton, and, and then one of the shows had gotten canceled. And then this guy had seen us on the Wednesday saying, how'd you like to come to Blackpool and play a mod rally? I'll give you guys, what, 300 quid or whatever it was to cover the expenses. So we went up to Blackpool. Andy made it all happen. There was like six or 700 people all dressed in the same mod suits that we're wearing. And we're just ripping into it. Here we go. You know, and, <laughs> I love it. I love um, it. And they just loved it. And then Andy's like, Baz, you know, he's like, what was funny? He's so Andy's called me Baz for a very long time. The very first letter I have from Andy, you know, I kind of dug that out and he calls me Baz in the first letter, but that was the beginning of our friendship. But that was also the beginning of a very exciting part of our lives where you are getting to share your love as a fan to all these other people and to have people come and play bigger and bigger venues, even if there were no great fortunes involved, it was still a joyous part of my life. And then occasionally things would happen where we're like, oh, how'd you like to come back to England? How'd you like to go to Canada? Three of you, obviously, in the band. Yeah, we're replicating the jam perfectly. So Glenn, you mentioned, is the Bruce Foxton in the band. Yep. You had AJ, who's your Rick Buckler on drums. Tribute bands were a thing in the US. They weren't really a thing over here, were they? But they, they, they were a thing in the really States, right? They, you didn't really see him in the U.S. either. Okay. So we were like one of the first tribute bands. So so in the United States, the only bands you ever saw was there was something, there was the Australian Doors and Bjorn again and us. And then there was Beatlemania, which was more of a Broadway show. But we had envisioned it almost like a Beatlemania kind of thing. We seemed to do better with the punkier fast songs. So the 77 to 79 was kind of our sweet spot for a lot of the material. But so much of it was, it was just so much fun. But to stand up on a stage in front of 900 people at the marquee, or Brighton Center East Wing. And Andy was always very good about shielding me from a lot of the stress he was under because sometimes he's like, Baz, it's good we got 900 people because we weren't going to break even otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> now, Andy, you, so you see this article in the in the fanzine and in, in terms of time, we're talking about, you know, this is the end of the Style Council now. So this is, um, you know, this is Paul Weller's without a record deal. The Jam's music, you know, we've not had the greatest hits again. We've not had extras. It's not back on the radar really, but there's still obviously a big following. There's still people who are lapping this up. There's still the fanzines and stuff like that. It was through that that you connected, right? Yeah. And um, I wrote to Paul Weller and said about 1991 or two, and asked if I could go and interview him for the same fanzine that Barry's talking about. And I got a letter back from him saying, yeah, come up. Me and my friend, my school friend, Alan, who was a really big jam fan, went up to, from Worthing up to Nomis Studios, sort of walked in there and John Weller was there. He went, all right, boys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, have a seat over there. Paul, Paul will be with you in a minute and all this sort of stuff. And it was just, it, it was just bizarre because as I said, you know, this is a guy, his music had played such a major part in my life. Never expected him to, to reply and say, yeah, come and interview me or whatever. The thing that strikes me about that is how bloody easy that was. You didn't have to create a podcast with 160 odd episodes, did you? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. But, um, I don't even know if anyone would have been able to spell podcast back then. Uh, it, <laughs> You know, you're talking about a time. You're talking about a time when there was no internet, there's no mobile phones, there's no nothing. So I used to see the address on the back of the Torch Society stuff, whatever it was, Nomis Studios, Sinclair Road. So even from that perspective, 
it was accessible and you could probably get a phone number from somewhere if you wanted to ring up. And I used to hear stories of people saying, well, I rang up. I'm sure Weller answered the phone back then. So yeah, he wrote back and said, yeah, come. And so we, uh, we organized a date. I can't remember how the date got sorted. So we slept up to, to Nomis and. All of a sudden, he was sat there, and I remember it because it was he was rehearsing for the that first Paul Weller movement tour. Absolutely nothing going on. Those venues that they booked, I remember going to one of those shows after we saw him at the top rank in Brighton, half full. You know, it, it was like an audience of two hundred and fifty. It was ridiculous. But there we were, and we, me and my mate, printed out the questions that we were going to ask. We gave him a copy of them, and it was all the usual stuff. You know, how do you feel about Rick and Bruce and da 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 da? But he answered them, and he was uh, he was really really chatty. And the thing that struck me about him then the most was how, I don't know what age he would have been in 91, 92, but probably still relatively young. But he just had so much wisdom about him. You know, you sort of start talking about things and he just sort of exuded this sort of knowledge, not in a big ego way, but he was just incredibly chatty. So we sat there, smoked all his fags and chatted. <laughs> and I recorded the interview on those little tapes, you know, the, the sort of dictaphone things, wrote it out long form, sent him a copy because he said, could you send me a copy of it? About five days later, I get a letter back saying, really nice to meet you, but that interview is really dull. And he said, maybe that's just because I was dull on the day. He said, but it's a really dull interview. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, Oh my God. This is now filling me full of fear if if I do get an interview with him. (laughs) I've still got the letter. It's like, okay, well, what do you do with that? You know, but then, you know, it probably was quite dull the way we've written it up. But that was the first experience of seeing that whole kind of world of solid bond and no miss and all the rest of it and just kind of sort of seeing him as a as i guess as being a person which Mm. sounds ridiculous but you know you have these idols they never really sort of come across in in the mind as being human necessarily he was great he was he was so nice and him and his dad were off to see lennox lewis fight that night somewhere so they halfway through john interrupts what time shall i pick you up they said well we're going to see the lennox lewis fight tonight so well come right about six and we'll uh we'll drive up there to wembley wherever it was yeah it's that sort of stuff you know that's that wonderful i love it that interview then went into this fanzine and uh, we barry and i must have crossed over from there i saw the review or did something or other and so yeah i wrote to barry i don't know that the his address in boston must have been published in the in the thing and said i don't really know what i'm doing but sounds like Udo, are you going to come over and do some shows? And that's how it's, that's how it started. So they said yes. And about probably two or three months later, they ended up coming and sleeping on my mum and dad's floor in Worthing. And we did the first show at the Hare and Hounds in Brighton, which was packed. And my uncle Tub did the security with him and his big stick. It was oversubscribed and I didn't know what I was doing. I got them a PA, which was about a hundred watts or something. It, it just didn't, um, it didn't work. That's how the whole thing started. It was just amazing. But I, that the energy that came from, from those shows and from people just really, I like just loving the songs and the music and all that sort of stuff. It was just addictive as well, just to be in that sort of atmosphere. It was, it was amazing. Russell Hastings and I had a similar conversation like really early on on the podcast. I think it was like episode three, maybe. I asked him what it felt like to be Paul Weller. And Barry, I'll ask you the same question because these songs have such magic, such power, such love, but you're the front man. You're the, you know, the lead member of the band. What does it feel like to be up there singing these songs? You feel like they're yours. You know, like you sit there and you're like, what are we going to pull out now? You're looking at your friend Glenn and go, Glenn, we got to do tube station. And, and you're just like, cause you know, you're going to get the reaction. Because of the songs, you feel like you're actually controlling the crowd. And that's 
crazy. Like we played in Glasgow, right? We played at this place called the Cat House. We played it like three or four times. And you would see people against the crash barrier just smashing themselves. And and you're like, you see the sea of these people. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, The energy of these songs to be able to kind of harness that, like it's your special, oh, I'm going to get them now. I'm going to pull out all my cons into to be someone into it's too bad. And we're going to flap them all together. And I'm going to write. And then you're like, I'm going to go right into the modern world. Then I'm going to do art school. That'd be like seven songs in a row. They're going to freak out. And you know, you've got that is an amazing thing. Plus to, to be playing on a big stage with a big PA, you know, you're just like, oh, this sounds, this sounds so big. But there was just such a joy. And I will say, so Russell and I got to do Paul Weller at the same time. So Russell put together a tour. He was doing something. I think he was calling it the Paul Weller Council at the time where he was going around. He basically phoned me up. And he's like, I really liked, I saw you at the marquee. Do you guys want to come over? You can use our stuff. You know, so he basically provided the back line. He, he let me use his, his Rickenbackers. Russell is wonderful because to meet another Paul Weller front man and Russell is going through the Rick and, he's, and I'm like, wow, your Rick sounds cool. And he's like, oh, Barry, the trick is you got to use 11s. He goes, I noticed you had tens on yours. He goes, no, you got to go with the heavy gauge. That's the only way you're going to get it to really ring like Paul. And he's like, oh, and he goes, Paul would never use that pedal. You know, you need to use. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's too cool. Yeah. So, so Russ was doing the music of Paul Weller's solo career, you know, and we were doing the early jam stuff and he was gracious enough to let us headline. But I had some wonderful experience with Russell. We had one where they were doing something called The Gift and it was Rick Buckler's The Gift. And he invited, you know, at the time, my son, Max, is uh, 50. At the time, he's like 14, 15 years old. And he's, Max is playing the drums. And who do you think his favorite drummer is? Anybody? Any guesses? <laughs> Phil, Phil Collins. Okay. We are in Hastings, my son and I. And we have an invitation to come see Russ's band play with Rick Buckler on drums. So my son, who's 15 years old, is helping Rick Buckler carry in his stuff. And Max is so excited. And of course, I'm excited because it's Rick Buckler, man. And he's carrying him in and Max pulls out the cowbell. Now, I had never seen the actual cowbell before. And so that cowbell that Rick uses is the size of like a loaf of bread. It's, it's, it's huge. It's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. And Max looks at Rick Buckler and says, is this the cowbell from A-Bomb and Wardour Street? And Rick looks very pleased. And he says, why, yes, Max, it is. <laughs> and so we help, we help Rick set up. We hang out. Rick is actually palled around with Max a little bit, which is unbelievable. They made special arrangements. So again, how nice are they to do this? So Rick and Russ made special arrangements so that my son, who's underage, could watch from behind the crash barrier up front. And then after the show, we thank them. We're off to go do, you know, we're off to get a pizza or whatever. And it's raining. Max and I are walking back to our bed and breakfast and who is walking down the street looking a little wet and a little confused, but Rick Buckler. (laughs) And he looks and he goes, Barry, Max, he just says, I'm in real trouble. He goes, I don't have my phone. I don't have my wallet. My car is locked in the garage. I didn't realize the garage closed early. He goes, I am totally in trouble here. And he's like, I don't know how to reach Russ. I don't know how I'm going to get home. And I'm like, I have Russ's phone number in my wallet. I just wrote his thing on a card. And so we're in a phone booth and Max is like, I have changed. (laughs) So we're in one of those red British phone boxes with Rick Buckler in the rain. 
Colin Russ to come back and pick him up. <laughs> and, and afterwards, and, and Max is looking at me and Max says, Dad, this is so surreal to be in a phone booth with Rick Buckler, who is one of our, our idols, if you will, you know, who's a regular guy who's super cool. Rick says to Max, Max, you have saved my life <laughs> because I will always be indebted to you. And then maybe two years later, the from the jam thing is really kind of blown up. Like it's really doing well. And they come back and they are at the, I think it's the Gramercy Theater in New York, which is a big, big venue. And we show up for sound check. At that point, Bruce is on bass. Russ is singing. Rick is on drums. Our friend Dave is playing kind of keyboards and backups. And we walk into sound check, me and Max. And the voice from the stage says, Max, don't I still owe you 50p? I love it. I love the fact that the connections with the fans like that never change. I mean, that's always been consistent throughout what, the 45 years on fans have those kind of stories. This is that- another generation of fan too. This isn't me. This is my son. Are you force feeding them the jam to him in the same way as I'm trying he to do my kids? He, so I would play cassettes, you know, and then eventually CDs, you know, all through the nineties. And that's what, so my son was born in 1990 and that's what he grew up on. So as a toddler, he could sing you, he could sing you that's entertainment or, or any jam song you could do. Now, Andy, I should ask you, I mean, obviously the connection for you with all mod cons was around the time of Paul. I guess coming back, if you like, those tours do pick up. Thank goodness. We're not playing to half, half empty venues for Paul Weller solo. You know, we get this, that first solo album. We get Wildwood. We get Stanley Road, but alongside it, this love of the jam is, is really strong again. Even Paul starts playing some more jam songs in his sets and stuff. So it's, it's not the kind of two are side by side, if you like. So you must have noticed. I mean, there, there's like a real opportunity there to tap into that market when, when Paul's on the rise himself again, right? Yeah, kind of. But the whole thing about this was it was never really anything entrepreneurial maybe it should have been but we sort of because barry and the others worked so the tours were around when barry's wife would let his ex-wife would let him come over because max and his daughter were still young and so even if we could do something which was more commercial it was impossible because like a maximum of two tours a year and the amount of money it took to put the thing on the road and all the rest of it there was never any chance of anything commercial happening naturally that changed for the worst because we ended up having Martin Hopewell as our agent, right? Well, primary talent, but Martin was the, was one of the directors of it because things were, we used to go to venues, which were a thousand, fifteen hundred and, and nearly pretty much sell them out. If not sell them out, the agent for Bjorn again, a guy called Paul Franklin, who works for primary wanted to be our agent. So they had to get permission from Paul Weller HQ to be able to do that which obviously happened but because then you're into working with agents and promoters and everyone's taking a cut and then there's the tour expenses and all this sort of stuff it was really difficult to break even let alone do anything else so yeah it was never really an entrepreneurial thing it just gathered momentum there wasn't really any alternative wasn't any other sort of live way of of seeing the jam music in quite that sort of setting and i think it just captured a moment in time really yeah the martin hopewell thing and i, I remember talking to Dennis Monday about, so I can't remember how that happened. It's a, he said, oh, got some jam stuff you might be interested in. And he was living in a place called Bounton Mont Chelsea in Kent. So me and John, who was one of the other guys from All Cons who sort of came in and out, we arranged to go down to see him. He said, by the way, but I've got to tell you, I've broken my back. This is, this is Dennis Monday. <laughs> That's all that breakdown scene in the Star Council years, wasn't it? That's what that was. Yeah, right. He said, I've broken my back. So I'm a bit immobile, he said, and I've been sleeping on a bed in the front room because I can't get upstairs. He said, but we still managed to go for a drink. 
So we went down there and knocked <laughs> on the door and he's opened. He's got like some sort of cravat. He's very stiff and moving very awkwardly. You can see in the front room, he had his bed there. He said, oh, we'll just go down the castle, wherever it was for a, for a couple of drinks. And yeah, I think it must have been purely medicinal for his back because we stayed there for a very long time. He ended up giving us this cassette of some unreleased stuff. This was again before much, much of that had ever really started to come out of a song called Best of Both Worlds, which actually was a Bruce song. So he said, oh, you, you know, see what you want to do with that. And so they, uh, all my cons recorded it and then put it into the live stuff. But all of those sorts of things, you know, it's just like being in the most ridiculous situations with these people that were so formative in all of that stuff and were just delightful in terms of giving time and telling stories and you know and all that sort of thing we were really lucky i saw dennis at, um i reminded him about this i saw him at that thing that they did up in liverpool the exhibition the nicky wellers and stuff and he was there and i reminded him he sort of vaguely remembered uh he obviously remembered breaking his back but he vaguely remembered the time he went to the pub but i think that's because he was too pissed he couldn't remember anything <laughs> But it was never really an entrepreneurial thing. It couldn't have been. I, I later went on and managed bands full time, did some tours with Paul Weller with some of the bands that, or one of the bands that I managed. But with all my content, there's never, a, there was never any opportunity to make money really. Let's dig into that a little bit. So what was the band that you managed that were on the lineup with Paul? And presumably you're then on the road with the Wellers, right? So I had a band called Rooster. They were a three piece guy, had a really soulful voice. They liked the group. So I agreed to put them on the tour support. They used to put them into segments. So we had the Southwest and some other stuff and into the Midlands. But you're on your own. You have to travel to the De Montfort Hall in Leicester or wherever it was on your own. Very rarely do you kind of get to see Paul or whatever. But there were times when he would come and watch backstage or they would say, oh, there's catering left over. Do you want that? Any one of a number of things that you actually then started as you, uh, as you start to get to know people, it was a bit more integrated. They were so nice. They were really, really nice. And he, again, just showed a, such a nice side of him. He talked to Jamie, the lead singer of Rooster, about songwriting and other stuff. And, you know, they play some songs to each other and they were just delightful. Once they trusted, I think it was that sort of, I've heard it on your podcast, you know, they talk about having a well-oiled machine with Kenny Wheeler and all that sort of stuff behind it. And that's exactly what it was like and the security and all the rest of it. But I think once you get trusted a bit, you know, it, it, the barriers start to come down. How many gigs does it take until you get invited into the card school? Well, so that was probably... <laughs> That was probably six. And I managed to dodge that one. It was at the room. I remember it really well. It was the Ramada at Ready. And there was Wheeler, John Weller and Chris Craddock. So Steve Craddock's dad. And it was about midnight. And someone said, oh, we're about time to play cards. And so I can't remember who it was. It said to me, because I was standing near them. Do you want to, you want to play card? You play card? I managed to say no, because uh, just my instinct. And I, when I looked over, they were like really hard at it. We left about two or three in the morning and they were still going. And there was a lot of money on the table. And it looked, you know, they were taking it really seriously. I can't remember how many people were playing, but I really dodged a bullet there because I thought I could just see my house going, you know, all that sort of stuff for, you know, every forever. Um, <laughs> but, but they were seriously into that. Yeah. The card school, the notoriety around that, as far as I'm concerned, seems to become well justified. All those guys were, they, they were really nice. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, Barry, I should ask you about the Style Council. Was that a thing for you or was it solely the jam? I did not get into the Style Council to well after my friendship with Andy was established because Andy was like, you need to give this a chance. I had pretty much shut off from the Style Council altogether. And Andy was like, no. He's like, our favorite shop is good. You know, you need to be able to, I, I think he started me off with the singular adventures of the style council. He's like, this will just get you in there. But I was not into the style council quite so much. It was much more all about the jam and the raw, you know, the raw energetic sound of the jam in that period, you know. In recent years, Paul's looked at his whole career as kind of one big catalog, right? So on tour, you'll have songs from the jam. He'll play stuff from the Style Council. He'll play what are now old is in the Paul Weller solo years. We're talking about a 30 year career, right? So, and, and obviously a lot of new stuff, even on his latest tour, he's doing songs that haven't even been released yet. But when you think about the jam, he's talked about the fact that he finds it quite hard to connect with some of those songs because they are young man's songs, because they are songs, not, not just the energy of how they perform, but the lyrics of them are talking about you in your teens. As you got older yourself, Barry, did you find it harder to connect with those songs too? No, no, because you're still, I, I'm still a teenager. You know, even though I'm now 60, I still, nothing gets your blood going like a great jam song. And sometimes I'll get away from the, the music a little bit. Then you put back in the, the disc for the commute into work. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is great stuff. You know, so you go back and it's still fresh and you still remember the feeling that you had the first time you heard it. And for me, imagine the joy of the first time you got to play it for other people, you know, and to actually do it. That reflection from Weller is interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at some of the lyrics that you wrote as a 17, 18, 19 year old person, like Burning Sky and Just Who's the Five O'Clock Hero and some of that stuff, without actually life experience of some of those situations, because it would be impossible to have life experience of all of the things that you wrote about, but just the, the insight and the sort of poetic way that he managed to craft those lyrics is is still outstanding and astonishing. And I don't think he necessarily gets the credit for that as a songwriter that he deserves, because some of that stuff, some of those lyrics, who could come up with that at that age? It's amazing. Musically, there's something magical about what it does to your your blood and your blood pressure and the way your your mind can travel and soar with these stories because you have to remember too i'm american i have no idea what a cortina is you know <laughs> you know but but uh, even you know and, and but i would i would actually try to learn you know and again i was learning off of some of the some of the stuff that we would do in our show some of the lyrics i misinterpreted them because you didn't maybe you didn't have the lyric sheet for all mod cons yet so imagine trying to get through artistic freedom do what you want you know but but you some of the songs and i'm, and I'm gonna be honest and i apologize for anybody that saw all mod cons is i never got all the lyrics for some of the songs, but I would do this kind of heavy, all right, here we are, and do the song. So even if I didn't understand the lyrics, I could kind of get through the song. We actually got to do a visit to Woking. And to me, going to Woking was like going to the Holy Land. That's as good as a trip to Jerusalem. I'm good, you know, and to go to Woking and, and some, somebody took us around and then we got to play a, a show. And I actually asked the, the good people of Woking, so how is my Woking accent? And they said it was shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> was this this was the fiery bird, wasn't it? In Woking, yeah, 
Fiery Bird, yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Were there venues over here where you went, those are the ones, I mean, you mentioned the marquee, but were, there were venues over here that you were like, we've got to play there. We got to play the Hope and Anchor, because to me, that was the famous jam spot, you know, as far as I was concerned. The Wheat Chief Pub, I don't know where that was, but it was a big deal to play the marquee. We sold it out. Like we played it three times, but we actually filled it. And I'm going to be very candid. We didn't fill it because we are the world's greatest band. We filled it because we did the music of the world's greatest band. And to share that with 900 people is a great honor and a great gift to get to do that. And that's something you'll always treasure. And that's something I, I've always, I've sometimes I'll talk to Andy and I'll just say, you know, Andy, some of the greatest moments of our lives were shared together. Andy had one, we were Brighton Center East Wing and he's like, Baz, he goes, when I look at you jumping up and down, trying to punch a hole in the bottom of that stage with the Rickenbacker and you got the big marshals behind you, that is the coolest thing ever. And Andy's like, when I looked at that bear and I see the lights and I see the sea of people going up and down and you play best of both worlds. Imagine that. You're playing a, an unreleased jam track that they ever did. And Andy's like, how lucky are we to know that we got to do this is so cool. You know, It's funny uh, mentioning the marquee because uh, on one of the shows, I've got this message from someone to say oh mr coppersmith's here well, that was a bit strange so i went out to the front and there's vic coppersmith heaven standing there um in this sort of white suit so it's really out of place and a fantastic hawaiian shirt i think yep. it's really open at the at the chest <laughs> really yep. Yep. like david hasselhoff i love it yeah but not quite so well quaffed i think i'd say it's a little bit overgrown there but anyway and he showed up and then sort of came in and watched the show and stuff I just thought, well, what's that about? He said, oh, I'm just really intrigued to see what this band's like live and stuff. He sort of had still had this sort of presence about about him, but being confronted with this guy who has sort of produced them so much and been so into Again, you know, it's just one of those sort of weird moments. Gary Crowley and people like that as well will come and watch. And so it's people that have been really involved in the jam sort of way back when, you know, and, and a part of that whole sort of movement and scene came and saw us. Yeah, it was, just, it was just weird. I was just sort of reflecting on this earlier because I didn't really get a chance to think about it that much. But just some of that stuff, it was it, it was uh, it was so surreal. I mean, this has taken you all over the place, all over the States. We talked about Canada. But it was nice that you came back to the UK. So you mentioned 2019. It had been, what, 15 years, I think, since you'd been here. And you came back to do five shows as like a farewell all mod cons type thing, right, Barry? Yes. Yeah, so, so we had toured with a wonderful band. Two of the tours in the, in the early mid-90s was a band called the Direction, which was a fantastic. And one of the guys ended up being the bass player for My Life Story, which is a, a wonderful band. And then this uh, other wonderful guy, Ivano, pinged me off of LinkedIn and just said, hey, Barry, you know, I'm coming to America. Would you like to, you know, meet for dinner? And then we finally chatted. He's like, I'd like to come back to England again. He's like, I'll set it up. He goes, you can use our stuff. And he's like, where do you want to play? And I had the joy, again, another um, unbelievable experience. I'm like, we got to do the Hope and Anchor because I also knew that, you know, we haven't been there in a long time and the Hope and Anchor is not a huge place. And I'm like, that'll be a great Saturday night show. And I and my son, who had never seen me play live, because you have to think about, you know, he wasn't old enough for a lot of the shows in, the, you know, in the early in the 90s. He was four and five years old and six years old. And suddenly my son is now 30, you know, and he's like, Dad, he goes, I'll come to I'll come to England and uh, I'll bring my friends. So my son flew out with, I think, five of his friends. They actually all got tattoos. Uh, <laughs> they got English roses on their shoulders. Brilliant. And my son shows up at the Hope and Anchor, and he is so proud and so excited. And of course, his friends are saying, 
your dad's the coolest dad ever. But this guy comes in and he's wearing an Ahmad Khan's T-shirt that he bought in 1992. And it's got the logo and he's showing he's showing Max. Actually, this was 94 because my son would have been four. And Max goes, I remember those shirts because we had some unsold ones. And he used to wear them as night shirts because they went down <laughs> to his ankles. And and But, it, but that kind of came full circle. If I can, I want to talk about two other things that were really important to me that in terms of how nice the jam really were okay i'd like to start with paul now one of the things i'm going to do so you the the people at home can't see this but i'm just going to go into my virtual backgrounds and i'm going to change it now the people at home can't see this but i'm going to describe it to you okay so this is me jamming with paul and we're actually in a men's room okay so i'm going to back away so uh so that dan can see the sink Okay, there, there it is. So just in terms of period, this is what, early 90s then? 93, something this, like that maybe? I'm actually wearing that shirt. So that's this has got to be 93, 93, yeah. 94, I bet. Yeah. He's actually playing the ovation from That's Entertainment, which is super cool. Okay. So previous to this, Paul would come to America and he wouldn't necessarily be playing the hugest places. So I had seen him at, at this one venue. Uh, it was Berkeley Performance Center, which is a beautiful venue. And I'm there outside with my Rickenbacker. Hoping to get it signed. I'm a fan. You got to remember that. I'm a huge fan. Okay. And I've got my red Rickenbacker and I am jonesing to have Paul sign my Rickenbacker. And who comes out but John Weller. And John Weller is so nice. And he just looks and he just, he says, oh, what? You won't pull the saw in this? Yeah, come on. And he takes me inside backstage. I'm like, who does this? And he hands Paul my guitar and Paul starts to strum it. I am so excited. I'm like, Paul Weller is playing my guitar and I am very excited. So John's like, Oh, come on. You can meet Paul. You know, so I see Paul again. This is our second meeting and he, he autographs my Rickenbacker, you know, and if you can see there's actually signatures on the Rickenbacker, Dan, I don't know if you can see that. And then I'm like, Oh, so where are you guys going afterwards? Like, let me hang out with you. And he's, and they're like, somebody, and somebody told me they're like, Oh, we're going back to the Copley Plaza hotel. And so, I'm at the bar at the Copley Plaza Hotel, keeping my respectful distance. And first I'm like, well, let's, we're going to send John Weller a Kahlua sombrero. That's what he's drinking. <laughs> so I send John Weller a Kahlua sombrero. And Paul is chatting with Helen Turner and Steve White. You know, I'm like, you know, I go and there's Dave Little. Dave Little is super cool. Dave Little's a funny, funny guy. And I'm just like, again, I'm trying not to be too much of a pest, but I'm pretty excited. You know, so I got my photo with that. And then they start handing my guitar around because I brought it up to the bar and everybody signs it. So Steve White signs it. Helen signs it. Camille Hines signs it. And I'm thinking like, geez, I got, I got the style council on this now. This is getting sweet. I, I got to get a few more. I just got to get the only signature I was missing and Bruce had signed it. I saw Bruce in Newcastle. When we were on tour, Bruce invited us down and I brought my guitar for Bruce to sign. So suddenly I'm thinking there's going to be a jam reunion on my guitar. This is going to be so super cool. So I'm like, I just got to get Rick to sign it at some point. Right. That's all I'm thinking. Right. And I asked Paul, this is at, the, at a hotel bar. I go, so Paul, man in the corner shop, what's the lick? And I'm going up. It's D then the B minor. He goes, no, no, no. He goes here. And he takes the guitar and Paul Weller is showing me how to play men in the corner shop. 
I tell this to Andy, and Andy, of course, is thinking, gee, Baz, this isn't a bad thing to tell the press. So he basically says, you know, Solid Bond and Paul Weller have given all mod cons the seal of approval. And Paul has even showed Barry the chords to a couple of the tunes, right? <laughs> so, so this is a couple years later. Paul is playing at Avalon in Boston. I have seen Kenny Wheeler enough times that I don't get, there's a verb that I don't know if your friends are familiar with. The verb is being wheelered. So wheelered is when you are kicked out of sound check. Kenny would come by and he goes, all right, boys, that's it. Get out, you know, and he'd push you out of sound check. Kenny Wheeler no longer wheelers me because he knows me by sight. And I basically am in sound check and I'm watching them do it. And it's basically Steve White just whomping away on his drum. They're trying to get the drum sound. They can't get it. And I'm like, Paul Weller has picked up the ovation and he has gone into the men's room to hear himself because acoustically it's just a nightmare and the club is just. And I'm like, Paul Weller has gone into the men's room. Perhaps I will follow <laughs> and just pretend like. So I'm in there kind of like washing my hands, trying to pretend like I'm sitting there and I'm wearing my Almod Cons t shirt. I'm saying hello. I ask him, I said, Paul, I'm like, I've got my Rickenbacker in the car. You know, right out front, I've got this little battery operated amp and I'm thinking, would you just do a song with me? And he looks at me and he goes, it's all right. And I'm like, oh, oh and my I God. am so excited. Okay. Cause I'm a fan, baby. And I run outside, get the guitar out of the trunk and I just run right past security with the guitar. I sit up and I am starting to shake and I see there's a, my friend Vinny. Vinny always has, he calls it his poxy camera. So Vinny always has a camera that he would sneak a little portable throwaway camera in his underpants into the show. And he would always take pictures, not, not great pictures, but this is pre phones. So I'm like, Vinny, follow me into the men's room. I'm about to jam with Paul Weller. I'm sitting there. So Paul looks at me, he goes, so what do you want to play? At this point, he was not playing jam songs. I'm thinking, I'm like, let's do into tomorrow which is the single off the first album, which is a wonderful tune. And we used to play it as all mod cons. We used to encore with it sometimes. So we had played it and he's like, all right. So I find myself doing my impression of Paul Weller to Paul Weller and I'm doing it. And I'm, it's kind of clicking. And Paul's like, no, no, slow it down. He goes, you got to let it breathe. But obviously I'm excited. So I'm rushing it. And he's like, no, no, Barry, you got this. So I'm sawing through it. Vinny's taking his photos and snapping away. We finish. I thank him. He looks at my guitar and he says, oh, you saw Bruce. How's he doing? And I just, I'm like, Bruce was great. You know, like he kind of knew, but at that point, I guess they hadn't spoken in a while, but Paul is wonderful. And I asked Vinny, you know, I said, so Vinny, how was it? This is afterwards, you know? And he goes, Barry, he goes, you looked so happy. He goes, your head, your head was glowing and you were floating about a foot off the ground. Right. And I'm like, well, I, I, you know, what was Paul doing? He goes, Barry, he's playing guitar. He'd look up at you, smile, shake his head and, and then go back to playing. I think you amused him. Like, <laughs> like, cause he could tell that this was pretty special. 
that's one of those things that I'll, I'll always cherish. This photo is a big thing, but also the fact that it's in a men's bathroom with a sink, you know, that you can see between us makes it even funnier, you know, um, but, but how that. gracious is that again, to not only, you know, to be nice enough to show me here, Barry, these are the chords to a song I don't play anymore to sure. I'll humor you and let you do this. But that was an amazing thing. Yeah. And I, and I also wanted to add too, like Bruce has always been unbelievable. So at one point, our bass player, Glenn, was having some pretty scary health problems. And Bruce called him. And Glenn Gormick's group goes, guess who just called me? You know, and this is on a landline. You know, he's like, Bruce Foxton just called me and hopes I'm doing good. And then every time we saw Bruce afterwards, he's be like, oh, so Glenn, how you doing, man? How you feeling? Which is just unbelievable to be that nice. And you see the rare experiences that we've had with them are just are just incredible. Well, look, this is this has been such a joy. I love the fact that this came from Andy just dropping me a, a random email via the website and just saying, look, there's a little story. I don't know if you know this and stuff. And the fact that we've been able to connect and, and hear your memories, Barry, hear your memories, Andy, has been a, a, a real joy, a real delight. So last time you saw Well Alive, Andy, would have been, it was New York. So this is weird. Like we're, we're flipping around, but you're stateside. You're seeing Paul Weller. And this was the, the, the three gigs he did where he, he was meant to do the jam, the Star Council, and, and then the yeah. Weller solo three nights in a row, right? The trilogy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We went over. Me and the, Alan, the guy that um, came with me to interview him all those years ago, and we met Barry there. So we were really excited. But it was billed by Rolling Stone magazine, I think, as being one night Star Council, one night jam, one night something else. And And it wasn't like that. And I guess Paul didn't know, right? That was the... Uh, that's how it had been sold. There was a whole load of people from England over there as well. Um, but that's the last time I saw him live. Those gigs were great, by the way. They were really good. There's some brilliant photos that um, Lawrence Watson has done of that, which is called, I think it's called the trilogy. And he's done photos of, of different nights in New York. And it's, they're fabulous. You should take those out. They're really cool. So Barry, was that your last Weller gig as well? Actually, no, I had seen him uh, just a few years ago. He came and he was actually at the Paradise in Boston. And then he came back and I think he did Berkeley. But I, I did want to say my photos from the trilogy are even better than this other person's because Andy and <laughs> I, Andy and I were so close that I was taking pictures of Paul's shoelaces <laughs> just to say, so I've got the picture. I'm like, look how effing close I am. I was very excited to be that close, but like, I'm like, look how smart dressed, look how sharply dressed this man is. But I, but to show how close I was, I was doing close-ups of his shoelaces with my phone. Am I right in saying Barry, that was when Kenny Wheeler then kicked in the restraining order. Was that right? <laughs> I see. He looks at me and goes, Barry, 300, yeah, 300 meters. I don't know what it, what it is. In England. <laughs> so finally, Final, final gig for all my cons. Vegas, is that right? Yeah, we were very fortunate. So we, we had done the October thing, you know, in 2019. And then we did a beautiful farewell Boston show because it had been 30 years. You know, like it was kind of like we we're like, gee, we're actually doing pretty good. Like we should just end it. Now, these moments where you can actually end and, and play and have people come, those are fleeting. We did a farewell Boston show in January and a lot of people came. And it was fantastic. We actually got some press saying, oh, final show ever. This is it. And then, you know, you always have friends and colleagues and coworkers that have heard about your your life and, you know, your your alter ego of things that you've gotten to do where you flew you flew to England for a weekend and played three shows and came back, you know, whatever, whatever happened. And I'm like, this is your only chance to see us. And people came and that was huge. And then in March, we had a scooter rally. 
in Las Vegas. That was the third time we had played Las Vegas. So we had done actually the fourth. We had done the Plaza twice. Great room. And we played the Sahara Hotel. So just like Elvis, you know, like I was happening, you know, and then this was a scooter rally at a place called Backstage bar and billiards you know and it was like a it was a club gig but it's great because you got all the mods you got djs you got people with the scooters and people dancing and having a fantastic time we even added one of the these guys from the opening band played keyboards so we did a, a quick run of a town called malice with him and that was our final tune and it was great andy barry this has been such a delight i had two final questions for you before you go i suppose four really given that there's two of you but um you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or solo. Andy, kick us off. What would you go with? Right. So, live jam, that bit that goes between all my cons and to be someone. You know that, where, where they join it together? That, just that, every time I listen to it, it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. So, I would take that. That's only about a 10 second part, but the actual song would be the whole point. I love that song, the Starcast song. It's just brilliant. And I love the melody. I love the lyrics and just sort of that moment in time. So for me, that out of, it's a really difficult decision, but that would be it. Nice. Barry, what about you? Nothing gets my blood going more than live jam. And it's the modern world. This is the modern world is just unbelievable. And that's the song where instantly, as soon as I hear that, that is like an electric current going through my nervous system. That's a wonderful song. That's so funny. I mean, I, I don't know that I've listened to that album since I bought it. You know, I was caning at the time. It's all of the energy that is there. If you could, if you could plug that in somehow, you could power the entire town of Woking. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think they did probably at one point. Andy, right. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's my one big regret. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. If I get the interview with Weller at the end of the series, what should I ask him? What would you like to know? So it's not a serious question, Dan, but what I noticed from listening to all of the live stuff predominantly through fire and skill, is that he starts off with that sort of when he's like, this is something called, and then he, he sort of has this weird osmosis of accents. So I would ask him, I'd like you to ask him, how the, on earth did that happen? If you listen to some of the early stuff, when they were doing things like Life from a Window and all that, it's really, really sort of a cockney drool. And then as they seem to get more successful, and maybe it's developed more of a sense of himself, he loses that and it becomes much more coherent. But it's really strange how it started. And then okay, <laughs> I would say, Paul, was that a conscious decision where you're trying to sound in a particular way or attract a particular element of the audience or what? But yeah, I've always been struck by that. It's a stupid question, but yeah. It's a great question. I mean, it feels a bit like when I joined the BBC and they insisted on me having elocution lessons. It was a similar thing. <laughs> How many lessons did you have? Because has, has it made any difference? Well, I, <laughs> well, you can hear. i tell you what it was, right? It was an Essex thing. Because I was born in Essex, it was, uh, you know, we don't, we don't say, why would we say our tea? ages everything's you know everything and everything and things like that right so they, they the bbc had to teach it out of me that's what it was maybe well at the same thing and relocated you to surrey <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, what about you barry question for paul weller do you remember the men's room incident <laughs> with barry from ahmad Khan in 1994 and how traumatic was it <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for having us. This was this was a lot of fun. I will put more details in the show notes. We'll put videos. We'll put photos. But my goodness me, what a lovely conversation, Andy! Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dan, and uh, good luck with the podcast. It's brilliant. 
Really enjoy Bless it. You. Thanks. Oh, well, thank you, Andy. Thank you for listening. And thank you for getting in touch as well. And Barry, lovely to see you stateside. Thanks for skiving off work for us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you again for helping all of us celebrate the best band in the fucking world. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. See you later. Cheers. My thanks once again to Barry Pugach and Andy Cook. What a story. The story of all mod cons the tribute band, on the podcast as we celebrate 45 years of all mod cons by The Jam, the album released on this day, 1978. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word. Do check out the show notes with photos on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, why not drop into my store for your official podcast merchandise? You can even get yourself a virtual coffee as well. That would be lovely. On the next episode, I'll give some shout outs to you if you've done exactly that. Plus, on the next episode, legendary promo man Dylan White will be my very special guest. This guy has promoted the music of some of the world's biggest acts. We're talking Oasis, U2. Arctic Monkeys, Primal Scream, The Libertines, Swade, Billy Bragg, Faithless, Fat Boy Slim, Joe Strummer, and of course, Paul Weller. Dylan White on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.